All right. Let's uh, bow in prayer together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together this morning. Father, we realize that um, all things happen according to your purpose and your plan, especially for those in this room that are your children. And uh, that means that uh, we're all here for a purpose this morning, and there are things that you have for us to learn, uh, things for you, things that you have for us to change in our lives. And I pray, Father, that you might work through the power of your word and the power of your spirit in the lives of all that are here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I do count it a privilege to be with you today. Uh, normally when I, I come, um, I come to share a specific passage of scripture and just try to get out of the way myself and let the text shine. Uh, but I've been specifically asked, as I think many other speakers throughout the year have, to share with you from a little bit more of a personal perspective. And uh, as I contemplated the task of, uh, given to me of sharing with you something that I wish that I had known when I was in your shoes as a college student, my immediate thought was, well, I'm, I'm, I'm too young for this task. I, they, they should ask older people to come and do something like this. What do I have to bring? But then I remembered how I viewed 40-year-olds when I was in your shoes. And I did a little bit of math, and I realized that most of you weren't even born when I went to college back in the early 90s. And then I felt very old. <laughs> most of you don't uh, know much about me. Thank you, Alex, for that uh, introduction, and you, you highlighted some of those main points. Let me give you just a brief survey of my life because it might be kind of helpful uh, before we get into the subject matter I want to talk about uh, with you today. I was born in 1974 in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, my father was pastoring a small little church in Plainwell, Michigan at the time. And at uh, six months of age for me, my father received a call to pastor a small church in Ohio. And I grew up in what many called a Mayberry-like town of less than 2,000 people as the pastor's kid at the local Baptist church. Um, following high school, I went to Bible Institute and then to a Christian college in Ohio. It was there that I received God's calling in my life for full-time pastoral ministry. It's also where I met my wife. And then shortly after college, we packed up all of our earthly possessions, which weren't very many, <laughs> and moved out here to Southern California to go to the Master's Seminary. The Lord allowed me to cut my teeth in ministry at Grace Community Church, and then in the summer of 2000, I began my ministry at Faith Community Church, which is just less than three miles down the road from you here. Now, there's an obvious theme that perhaps maybe you picked up in just that brief survey of my life. I was born and raised in the church. In fact, I don't really have any memories of life outside of the church. I'm going to guess that there are some uh, here whose stories are very similar to mine. And it may surprise you, knowing that, what the title of my message is today. I've titled this message, Learning to Love the Church. See, growing up in the church, I learned a lot about the church. In fact, maybe it would be a good exercise for us even now at the beginning of this message to kind of do a brief little survey about what the scriptures have to say about the church. If you would, open up your Bibles to Matthew 16. We'll kind of do a little survey through the Gospels and Acts and Epistles and just a quick little survey to a reminder of what the Bible actually says about the church. 
In Matthew 16, we have Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ. And beginning in verse 17, Jesus responds after this great confession that Peter has made with these words, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we don't have time to go into a big exegetical argument of what the rock is here in this passage. I really want to focus in on that statement that Jesus makes here where he says, I will build my church. There's two things that we're reminded of in that text. Jesus is the builder and the architect of this thing we call the church. But he's not only just the builder of it, he's the owner of it. It is his church. And because these two things are true, because Jesus is the one who's building it, and because he owns it, it's his possession, the truth is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is an indestructible force. What I mean by that is nothing can stop it. The church is destined for victory because her Savior, her head, Christ, has already won the battle. And that's why even when you come to the end of great epistles like Romans, you can see statements that Paul makes like the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your, speaking of the church there's feet. Because it's this indestructible, unstoppable force. Because Jesus is building it. And he's the one owning and protecting it. When we move on to Acts, we start to see that this church began to see massive change and transformation all over the known world. We see over and over statements of the church increasing and the number of its disciples increasing. So much so that one of my favorite little sections in Acts 17 is when the Jews that were in Thessalonica looked at Paul and Silas, these two church planters, and this is what they had to say about them. These are men who have turned the world upside down. That the church and her message of the gospel actually turns the world upside down. By the time we start to get to the epistles, we continue to see pictures of just the beauty of this church. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, we have a section where the apostle Paul starts to revel in the fact that he gets to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he gets to proclaim this mystery that the church is now composed of Jew and Gentile alike. And... We'll pick up in verse 7 where he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So this beautiful thing that's being constructed in the church, Jews and Gentiles alike coming in and experiencing the promises of Jesus and the provision that Jesus provides for all who will believe. He says it's this beautiful thing that is proclaiming the manifold wisdom of God. The church itself, and that word manifold, has this idea of multifaceted or, or kind of like a diamond that has all of those cuts on it that then 
shoots out the beautiful light in all the different directions. And it's as though God holds up his church and like a diamond that's shining in the light for all to see. And in this passage, specifically even those in the heavenly realms, to look at and to see his amazing wisdom. Ephesians also lets us know that the church demonstrates not only his amazing wisdom, but the incredible glory of his grace. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1, three times in the opening long sentence, that all that he's doing in this world through his son and bringing people, you and I, into his family is to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. And then by the time we come to the end of our New Testaments in Revelation 19, we see this glorious celebration taking place, uh, referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verse 6 of Revelation 19, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of the great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And here we have a picture at the end of time of this glorious celebration of the church enjoying a celebration with her Savior, with the Lamb. And we know from earlier that this church is now composed of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. It has this glorious end as her victory is sure. Now, I knew all these things to be true growing up. In fact, if, if, if I had you for even longer, we, I could have taken you to other places of all the glorious things that the Scripture says about the church. But there was a problem that was brewing in my mind and my heart as I grew about to your age. And it was this, that the church that I looked at didn't look like that picture. When I thought about what the scriptures had to say, it was this glorious, huge, massive, victorious, explosive picture. Yet when I looked at the local version, it seemed very ordinary to me. As I went to college, this continued to start to form in my mind. I, I began to think about my own lo local church experience and thinking, boy, it just doesn't seem like that picture is the one that I had in my mind of all that I've studied in, in Scripture. Maybe you grew up in churches like mine. I, I thought of the church ladies that were singing special music during the offertory in keys that they had no business singing and thinking certainly that can't be what's described in the Scriptures. And I thought about those Sunday school rooms down in the basement with the outdated green carpet and the old flannel graph boards and thinking that that can't be what's described in an axe. And you know, I thought about our hymn sings on Sunday night and how my sister and I could almost predict which songs would be selected by which senior saints. So that, that all seems very ordinary to me. And I, I didn't see this explosive aspect of the church like I saw in the New Testament. And what began to happen to me during my college years is that certain attitudes started to develop in my heart. 
ones that I didn't fully recognize at the time to be so prideful, and perhaps maybe you could even use the word condescending. But slowly I began to view myself as the one who knew it all. All of these churches have it wrong. None of these churches are getting it right. And if I was just in charge for a day, I could right this ship. I could fix it. Now, of course, this was coming on the wealth of experience of about three years of undergraduate study. But this is what started to well up in my mind, in my my heart during those college years. I started to sense as well an attitude that developed in me that anything that seemed or smelled of a past generation was wrong. That only that which was being developed in the time period in which I was going to college was valid and and exciting and, and right. And this just continued to add to this prideful, condescending attitude that I had. This was the beginning of the problem in my waning affections for the local church, but upon graduation, I encountered a new problem. How many of you, just by show of hands, are soon to graduate this summer, this spring? A lot of you. Um, I remember upon graduation from college, as I started to transition into the real world as an independent adult, that I had a tendency to compare my college experience to my church life experience. That I had set up these expectations in my mind of the experience that I had at Christian college would then translate and be the experience that I have at my local church. You see, I had a great college experience. I had great roommates and friends, great RAs and RDs, great professors, different chapel speakers, five days a week, social activities every weekend, you name it, it's the life that you're living. Given such expectations, no local church could really measure up. I thought, boy, once again, it's feeding this idea, everybody's got it wrong. What's wrong with the church that they don't have the same sort of deep relationships that I had in college? What's wrong with the the church that we aren't sharing our lives like we did in college? And this continued to feed this subtle, not fully aware of my own heart and life, prideful, condescending attitude towards the church. As I grew a little bit older and began to actually shepherd God's sheep within the church, I ran into one more problem, and that is that the church hurt me. I learned that sheep can bite. I learned that even Christians still fight. I learned that it's very possible for your deepest wounds, your most hurtful scars to be inflicted by the church itself. And all of these things caused my love for the church to wane. In fact, I can look back on times in my ministry where I was so ready to quit that I began crafting exit messages in my own mind. Yet by God's grace, rather than running, the Lord held me. 
and wouldn't let me go. And I am so grateful for that. Because I believe that it's only been in the last probably eight to ten years where I've really started to see and love and appreciate the church the way that I should. See, there's some things that I now know, having been down the road just a little bit further, that I just couldn't see when I was 18, 19 years old. I'd like to maybe just share a few of those things now. The first is that I learned that I had a skewed perspective of the Bible's description of the church. Now, when I say that, I am not in any way discounting all the things that I shared with you at the beginning of this message. It is entirely true that the church is this indestructible force that is changing and transforming the world and has a glorious and victorious ending. All of those things are true. But what I was missing was the fact that I had a tendency to condense what I saw in the scriptures instead of allowing it to see, to live and breathe in what I call real time. Let me just give you an example. If in your Old Testament survey classes here, you've read through the Old Testament, it seems as though God showed up all the time. If you're just reading it on the pages, it seems like, boy, God just showed up and there were all sorts of miraculous things and he spoke and he did all these sort of things. And what we oftentimes fail to remember is that that's a narrative that's covering more than a thousand years. And when we chart out all of those extraordinary moments on the chart, we are left with far more what I'll call ordinary real life moments. Far more. As I started to think about that and as I started to get more into the study of the epistles, I started to realize that these churches that were founded in this explosive and glorious time called the book of of Acts were churches that had problems and struggled just like the churches I'd always been a part of. For any of you who've read your epistles, you've seen those struggles. They were just as far from perfect as the church that I grew up in in Ohio or whatever church you grew up in. I started to realize a truth that I think is true for most all churches. And that is this, while churches experience, at times, explosive growth or extraordinary seasons of ministry, most of the time churches are engaged in slow, long-term gospel ministry. See, my expectations have been set that all of life in the church ought to be explosive and massive change and growth and things that you can see in your eyeballs from week to week. Yet as I've had the privilege of ministering and being a part of the church for these four plus decades, I've started to realize that much of the life of the church lives in those ordinary periods. I was reminded of this uh, recently when I took my 12-year-old son for his 12-year-old physical. My 12-year-old son is my oldest of four children, and he has just hit his first, first growth spurt. It happened while we were away over the summer, and uh, he grew so much, he passed his mother in height, and when we returned back to our church, most people were saying, who is this boy? His voice had changed, things started popping up on his face, 
You, you know the time. He's going through a season where it's fairly explosive growth for him. But when I went and, and I saw the pediatrician, the pediatrician took a note of that, and he made this statement, which struck me, especially in light of some of the things I'd been thinking about. He said to my son, well, now that you started, you probably have about two years of really experiencing growth. I thought, wow. I could see it was a very sobering reality for my son. That once this puberty had onset, that there was a short window of this explosive growth. And from that point on, it would be pretty normal and pretty static for him. That he wouldn't continue to grow like this all the time. Now, he may want that at this point, but I will tell you as one who's six foot five, I am glad I'm not an inch taller. <laughs> Especially every time I fly. But we all come to a point where we stop physically growing. Now, it doesn't mean that you stop growing in every sense. Hopefully, there's a growing in your spiritual development and your, and your emotional maturity and all the different things that should happen as you continue to age. But, but you don't just keep going, you know, six foot, seven foot, eight foot, nine foot. Oftentimes, churches do the same. Yes, God gives them a season, a, a growth spurt, a, a change, but then they they hit points where their growth isn't as discernible as the boy going through puberty. Now, the beautiful thing as we continue to grow and develop is that hopefully there'll come a point when my son stops growing taller that he can reproduce and start a family of his own. And that's one of the glorious things that the church does as she reproduces herself in church plants all over the globe. But that's a message for another time. The truth is that the churches that you'll be a part of by and large, won't have massive, huge, explosive growth every single week, every month of your time there. I had the privilege of going back to my home church this summer. I had not been there in years. And um, I didn't fully anticipate what would happen when I returned back to this church that seemed very ordinary to me at the time. I went back and I sat in the balcony where I remember sitting as a teenager. And we began singing the songs, and I looked out, and in a small town in Ohio, the landscape doesn't change very much. It was mostly the same families. And I looked out, and the Lord allowed me to see the impact that that church had had on my life. I saw person after person who had spoken into my life at key stages who had modeled different aspects of Christ that perhaps maybe I didn't fully appreciate when I was young. I looked and I saw families sitting in the pews now who were antagonistic towards the gospel when I was a teenager, but were now following Jesus because of the faithful witness of that church. And I realized that what I had once thought was ordinary was really glorious. That you just can't capture it in a small little one-year time capsule to get the picture of what the church is doing. But when I had a chance to look at it from a farther away view of being away for a decade plus, I could see that God works through the every ordinary day church in ways that I just didn't understand when I was young. 
as I thought about the fact that the church in many ways did not measure up to my expectations of what my Christian college experience was life, I began to learn this truth, that the church is not only for cool people, well-adjusted people, or people like you or me, it is made up of all kinds of people, and that is her glory. You know, Christian college is a unique spirit of, uh, season of time because you're primarily with all your peers. Most of your peers have similar dreams, similar aspirations. Yes, you have different majors, but you're all here at the master's college. You're all at the same season of life. You all have the same aspirations and dreams and trajectories. You guys, most of you live in dormitories and you get to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week with one another. When you leave here and you go to a local church, it's going to be filled with all sorts of different kinds of people. And while I admit, as I look back on my life, and I think very fondly back to those Christian college experiences, it was easier to make relationships in college than it was when I hit the local church. After all, we were all the same. We spent so much time together. Our lives were just intertwined. And then when you get out to the local church, you realize that there's all sorts of different people of different ages, stages of life, personalities, dreams and aspirations, backgrounds. In our church alone, on this past Sunday, I prayed for a baby that had just been born that week. And later on today, I will go and pray with a senior saint from our church who's 100 years of age at Henry Mayo. The local church has that kind of breadth. In our church, we have some people who are friendship magnets. Everybody wants to be around them. And some people who just seem to retard all sorts of relationships. In our church, we have some people who have walked with Jesus for decades and some who can measure it still in weeks. That makes relationships harder. But I will tell you this, when you make the effort, it is far more rewarding. It is far more rewarding to have people speak into your lives from all age groups and all walks of life and all ethnic backgrounds than just simply your peers. After all, there is a tie that binds Christian hearts together, and we are all better for it when we allow it to work in our lives. As I thought about that final problem in my life of the fact that the church often hurt me, and this caused my love and affection for her to wane, I had to remind myself that the church is a family. It's the family of God. Now, all of you have grown up in families of some sort, and I'm sure that if we were to line it up, there's a myriad of different kind of home lives that you came from. But I'm going to guess that there's one common thing for every single one of us in here who's been born and raised in a family. You've been hurt by your family somewhere along the way. It's just the, the reality of sinful people sharing that much life together. Um, I, I've never met anybody who's been a part of a family who, who doesn't have some sort of wound, some sort of hurt that's happened somewhere along the way. Disappointment, unmet expectations, spiteful, hurtful things done. But I, I hope 
as well, and I know that some of you have maybe come from such dysfunctional and such challenging homes, it might be hard for you to even believe this. But I hope you still do, and that is that the benefits and the love of a family far outweigh the risk of injury. The benefits of truly being a part of a family far outweigh the risks of the injury that will inevitably happen to you in the church. Um, You know, nobody's family is perfect, and whatever church you go to um, post-master's college won't be perfect either. Uh, But I will tell you that if you invest in it and as you see the church truly as a family, your life will be enriched in ways that you won't even fully be able to comprehend in the moment. Sometimes you'll only get glimpses of it over time, how they've invested in you. And maybe if the Lord blesses you with a family one day, how they've invested in your children. We, we have to, especially in a culture which is tending towards larger and larger and bigger production churches and all of these sort of things, we have to buck against anything that tells us that the church is something other than a family. You don't get to pick and choose your family in the sense of saying, well, you know, you are no longer my parents. You are no longer my siblings. I guess you can functionally say that and you can live your life as though they don't exist, but it will be to your own detriment and your own harm. Many people today view their church as a business entity that once it stops meeting their needs, they'll find another provider. Rather than seeing their church as a family, a family that doesn't quit on one another. See, when we start to see the church as a family, we start to see that it's important for me to invest in the relationships that God's placed there, not just simply be a consumer of what takes place from up front. And your lives will be inevitably richer as you develop those relationships with diverse people from all across the board who are following Jesus. And I'm certain that if you're willing to take that risk, and truly view your church as your family, even thicker than blood, that you will find what I have found, and that is that the church is the best thing going on this earth. It really is. Now I have a few encouragements for you, having just made these observations. Things for maybe you just to file away in the back of your minds, especially those of you that are seniors and are about on this next stage where who knows where God will scatter you about this globe. And The first one is very simple, but I think it bears reminding, and that is you need the church. You need the church. I know that that is a bit dulled in your mind when you're at a Christian college. Because you guys have, in many ways, wonderful community together. You have incredible instruction that comes at you from all sorts of different angles. You have ministry opportunities. You have missions opportunities. You have all sorts of these things. And in many ways, that has a temptation to dull your appetite or the sense of a need for the church. Oh, I beg of you, do not let that happen during this time. 
Do not allow bad attitudes and poor discipline to start to grow up in your heart and your life now that you'll unfortunately reap the dividends from when you leave this place. You desperately need that community once you leave here. You desperately need those voices speaking in your lives. You desperately need God's people to help build you up in love. Do not forget that. I've seen far too many people leave college and wander in the wilderness for years before they come to grips with the reality of how desperately they need the church. Secondly, learn to love the church rather than change the church. Now, I'll give you a caution on this one. I'm not saying that every church is doing it right or that God might not use you to bring about change. Okay, so hear me when I say that. I'm not just promoting a laissez-faire attitude of whatever the church is doing, just be happy and go along with it. What I am saying is this, that your primary motivation for entering into a local body ought to be one of loving her, not changing her. Let me just throw this in the illustration of something that maybe some of you are already thinking about, planning towards, maybe some of you are already there, and that is marriage. I get the privilege in our church to do a fair amount of marriage counseling, of marriages that have you know, come to a critical point. One of the things that I see quite often in marriages is this, that one spouse has made it their aim to change the other. It now becomes the predominant consuming thing of their relationship together. It's no longer motivated by a genuine love and a desire to serve the spouse. It has shifted into more of a selfish, sinful tendency of saying, I want you this way. Now, I will tell you, when that happens in a marriage, it never ends up good. The person who's trying to do the changing is constantly angry. Because that other person just won't do it the way that they want them to do it. And the person who's constantly trying to be changed is incredibly frustrated. Never seems to measure up. See, within marriage, the motivation has to be one of self-sacrifice and love. Yes, God will use you as a spouse to bring about change in your husband or your wife. But you will never see that change happen when you make it your aim to mold them into something of your own image. I think the same principle applies for you when you go to a local church. If you make the decision to come to a local church and the main reason why you're there is to change it, it will be frustrating for all sides. But if you've come with a heart that loves that church, wants to serve that church, wants to be used by God to see that church be all that it can be, it's amazing what God may do through you and for that church. So youthful energy and passion are gifts to a local church. Any pastor worth their salt would be thrilled for youthful passion and energy. But youthful pride is like sour milk on a hot day. 
Nobody likes it. Thirdly, not only do you need the church, not only should you learn to love the church rather than change the church, but I encourage you to begin to abound in the work of the church. Don't allow the church just simply to be an add-on to your life once you leave here. The extra measure once everything else that you want to do is completed. The odd man out if it's been a full week. If the church is God's building project to bring glory to God, then ought we not labor in it? If Jesus has given us the Great Commission and he's let us know that he's in church-building mode, ought we not attach ourselves to that mission? The church was never designed to just simply be this small little slice of the pie of your life. In many ways, it's supposed to be the hub. It's supposed to be the thing that you center your life around. The gospel she proclaims and your brothers and sisters who make up its membership are your greatest priorities. Not just those things that you'll take advantage of when they fit into your systems or your plans or your desires. See, When you come to church expecting for all of your needs to be met, you will be disappointed. But when you come saying, please give me the privilege of serving. Please let me invest my life in something that matters for all eternity. Let me attach myself to the work of the Lord. Then what you find is that instead of seeing every wart on the church, you start to see the church for what it really is, God's diamond that's on display for all to see. I leave you this morning with these words from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord... Your labor is not in vain. Father, I praise you and I thank you for the body of Christ. Father, thank you that even though at times we look with our eyes and we see something that's very ordinary, that you are accomplishing extraordinary things in your time and in your way. May we not fall into that temptation which is so easy for us to want immediate gratification, that we want it to happen like a microwave. Father, may we trust in your timing and in your plan as you grow and as your son builds his church. Father, I pray that you might help us to have humility as we approach our brothers and sisters in the local church that we would not come with a prideful, condescending attitude, trying to conform that church into all of our ideas and all of our ideals, 
but that might, we might come with a heart to love her, to serve her, to spend ourselves for her. Father, I pray that we might count it our greatest privilege and our greatest joy to abound in the work of the Lord. May you remind us, even in those moments when it seems very ordinary, that our labor in the Lord is never, ever, ever in vain. So, Father, help us, wherever we're at, to learn to love your church more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.